0: Uh, This morning, we will be picking back up in our series going through the book of Mark uh, in a sermon titled Total Surrender. Our text this morning uh, is Jesus' final instance of his public teaching ministry. So after this section of text in the book of Mark, uh, everything Jesus does is for the disciples or smaller groups of people or individuals. No longer will he he be teaching uh, to huge crowds on the countryside or in the temple. Uh, I won't lie to you, this is a challenging uh, and convicting teaching from Jesus this morning. It's one that ultimately calls us to a place of total surrender to God. Everything from politics to money uh, to our view of the resurrection and the afterlife to how we love God and how we love each other. And so uh, we're going to dive into that this morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, uh, we will be in verses uh, 13 to 44. And just a note about Bibles, I would encourage you to bring your own Bible uh, to Sunday morning services if you have one. If you don't have one, uh, there are Bibles on the back uh, at the usher's table behind the tech booth. Uh, Feel free to grab one of those. And if you don't own a Bible, you can take that home uh, as Crossview's gift to you. We'd love to have uh, you have a Bible in your home Uh, that you can be reading each week. Uh, Otherwise, if you're here and you prefer to use a digital version, you can do that. I'm preaching from the Christian Standard Bible. All of the sermon notes are in the YouVersion Bible app as well. So uh, as you turn to Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 44, let's set the stage for us just a little bit. As you may remember, Jesus and his band of disciples are working their way towards Jerusalem, Uh, teaching and ministering along the way. Jesus knows that at this uh, final destination of his, he will ultimately be handed over uh, and crucified and raised from the dead, but uh, everyone doesn't understand that yet. Jesus, at the end of chapter 11, arrives in Jerusalem with his disciples, uh, and they finally get there. Jesus goes into the temple and begins to teach. The religious leaders uh, of the city, the chief priests, scribes, and elders— the end of chapter 11 says, come to Jesus and challenge his authority. They want to know uh, under what authority he's doing all of the things and saying all of the things that he's done. Uh, Jesus confronts them back, uh, as we see at the end of 11. And then, as we saw last week, uh, he teaches them the parable of the vineyard owner. Uh, and he points out that the, these, uh, the religious elite, without a relationship with God, first rejected the prophets and now will reject even God's own Son. So they're in the temple. Jesus is engaging with religious leaders. They're put off by Jesus' teaching, right? And the end of the section last week says that they wanted to arrest Jesus, but instead they decide to walk away. That brings us to our text this morning. Jesus is still in the temple teaching while his disciples hang out and watch what's going on and interact with the people. So what happens next It's a fascinating series of challenges to Jesus and then back to the religious leaders and ultimately challenges to you and I. So as we work through these verses this morning, we're going to talk through six questions and answers that ultimately should cause us to come to a place of total surrender to God. So with that in mind, uh, let's start with Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. It says this, Then they, uh, that is the religious leaders who had just walked away after being convicted by the parable of the vineyard owner, they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Question number one, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? The chief priests, scribes, and elders that had challenged Jesus' authority at the end of chapter 11, right, have walked away from this uh, confrontation that they initially dropped on Jesus, but they didn't yet consider themselves defeated. Instead of re-engaging themselves, though, they send in their friends to do their bidding, the Pharisees and the Herodians, to try and trap Jesus in his words. With this question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. The Jews, uh, as you know, were living under the rule of Rome. Tax collectors were notorious for overtaxation and caused all kinds of problems for Jewish people. And so this small group comes to Jesus and try to trap him with this question. See, if Jesus answers yes, yes it is lawful to pay taxes, then the Jews will be livid and think Jesus is complicit in their abuse and that he doesn't care about them. But If he answers no, he'll upset the Roman rule and he'll be arrested very quickly, which is what these religious leaders hoped for from the start. You can imagine the smirk on their face, right, as they uh, realize that they came up with the perfect question to trap Jesus. It's a lose-lose, right? They're probably like, gotcha, Jesus. Anyway, well, Jesus isn't threatened by their trap, right? He calls it out immediately. Why are you testing me. And he tells them to bring him a denarius. That was a coin worth about a day's wages and very likely the amount that would have satisfied the tax that these people were referencing. Jesus asks the question, whose inscription is on this coin? That's like me asking you, who is on the quarter? Right? It's Washington. It's Caesar. His face is on it. It belongs to him. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's simple. The Roman Empire is uh, the group that determined the value of the money and how much they would get back in taxes, right? And so these people operate their whole life and livelihood within that system. Therefore, yes, pay them the tax. Pay them their money. And Jesus goes on to answer the question, pay to God what is God's. Answer, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Why does Jesus add this second sentence? Well, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, brings some clarity. In creation, God said this after he made man and woman. He says, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. The image on the denarius is the image of Caesar. The image on you is the image of God. Just as the denarius operates inside the economy of Rome and the dollar inside the economy of the United States, so men and women, all men and all women operate in God's economy within his limits and bounds and regulations. Jesus wasn't trapped by this question at all. He wasn't threatened. In fact, he turned their question on its head and used it against them to show them and everyone watching the interchange how off-base they were. Unlike Caesar, who only requires a portion of a person's earning to pay his tax, we're going to see in a bit that God's requirement for those made in his image, with his image on them, is much, much greater. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus' answer is yes. And to God, what is his? Your whole life. Verses 18 to 27 go on where we see our second question. It says this, Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and, dying, left no offspring. The second also took her and he died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? Jesus spoke to them. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, i am the god of abraham and the god of isaac and the god of jacob he is not the god of the dead but of the living you are badly mistaken after the pharisees and the herodians have failed to discredit jesus the sadducees come in for their turn and spoiler alert it's not going to go much better than the first few times this group has tried What's going on here? Well, the Sadducees are a group of people who held strongly to the law of Moses but rejected the idea of the resurrection from the dead and rejected the idea of spirits. Like we talk about we have a spirit inside of us. You lived, you upheld the law of Moses, you died, the end. That was the story for the Sadducees. Jesus, though, has already predicted his own death and resurrection three times before entering Jerusalem. And that's not something that the religious leaders in the hub of Judaism would have missed. So they come to try and trap their hand, or try to, they come and try their hand at trapping Jesus by disproving the resurrection, right? If the resurre- resurrection isn't real and Jesus has predicted three times that he's gonna raise from the dead, then this guy's probably just a loony nut job who needs to get out of here, right? So they come up with this wild scenario based on a law in Deuteronomy that said if, uh, if a husband were to die, then her brother-in-law, right, her husband's brother, was to take her in as his wife, give her children, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law for her. To our 21st century ears, that might sound kind of rough, right? But context brings clarity, In the days of Moses, women had almost no rights on their own, and widows were even worse off. Culturally, they had almost nothing to offer. They weren't desirable for marriage, and their outlook on life after their husband passed away would have been bleak. They would have struggled for shelter and food, etc. So, as a way to care for them that was culturally and contextually appropriate a law was put in place that said brother-in-law you must care for her if her husband dies take her as your wife give her children so that one day her sons may care and provide for her and fulfill your duty as a brother-in-law it's weird to our context right but compared to what was going on in nations surrounding israel at the time during the time of moses this law was extremely pro-woman So, the law of Moses, which the Sadducees valued greatly, required a woman to marry her brother-in-law should she be widowed. In this scenario that they come up with, this imaginary woman is tragically widowed seven times, and she has no offspring to care for her, and ultimately she dies. Her life is very tough. If this woman, the argument goes, has been married seven times, And presumably, marriages are meant to be forever. Who will she be married to in the resurrection, they ask. Question number two, whose wife will she be? See, for the Sadducees, both this law and the resurrection cannot be true, right? Jesus claimed that he would be resurrected. He also claimed that the uh, the whole of the Old Testament and the law pointed to him. So they say they both can't be true. Jesus says, actually, they both are true. And so what's he going to do? How's he going to get around the logic of the Sadducees? If he says the law isn't true, he loses, right? He's already quoted from the Old Testament and cited it and explained it and taught from it repeatedly. And so if he says it's not actually true, he'll discredit his whole ministry. And if he says the resurrection isn't true, he loses, right? He's already claimed that he'd be raised from the dead. It's another gotcha moment, right? Well, as we know, not even close, not even close to a gotcha moment. The Sadducees lay out this trap and Jesus replies by telling them that they fundamentally misunderstand the scriptures and the power of God. They fundamentally misunderstand the scriptures and the power of God. Uh, commentator James Edwards said that Jesus' accusation right there, that he, he's telling the Sadducees that they misunderstand the power of God and the scriptures, was like claiming that Wall Street knows nothing of finance. It's a bold claim to say that the experts in these two areas have no idea what they're talking about. He goes on, Edwards, uh, to say what the Sadducees claim to know best, they in fact know least. Jesus responds with the answer. When the resurrection from the dead happens, and it will happen, Jesus says they or we will neither be marry nor be given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. In other words, the Sadducees' very premise for this challenge to Jesus is wrong. The answer is not one through seven, it's option eight. The woman won't be married to any of the men. This would not have been a widely accepted view of the day. Most would have argued that marriage was a relationship that existed into eternity, right? Whatever eternity looked like. Even today, the view that marriage is just for this life is probably an unpopular one. This text might make some in this room or watching online squirm with discomfort, right? The thought of not being with your beloved spouse into eternity, worshiping Jesus together side by side as you've done for a good chunk of your life, that's rough to think about, right? It's, it's a sad thought. The thing is, though, in heaven, when we're resurrected and with Jesus, the purposes of marriage will have been fulfilled, No longer will God's people need to fill the earth with offspring or find satisfaction in a loving partner. All of that will be fulfilled by merely existing in God's presence where our relationship with him is completely unhindered by sin and we get to sit in his presence and worship. The gospel that the marriage relationship is meant to beautifully reflect will be fully realized. Christ will have his bride, the church, All that to say, Jesus says this woman won't be married in heaven. The point here is not to crush the spirit of all the married people in the temple back then or in this room today. The point is that the Sadducees have it all wrong. Rather than humbly approaching the scriptures and trying to understand, they throw what they think they know in Jesus' face and they think they've trapped him. They haven't. Jesus goes on to talk about the dead being raised, right? He says, he says uh, some things about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, further crushing the view that the resurrection from the dead wasn't real. He references Moses' interaction with God in the burning bush. When God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At the point when the burning bush episode happened, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were all dead. At the, at the point when that happened, Uh, The promises that were made to Abraham, covenantal promises that God swore on his life in Genesis 15 to uphold, were unfulfilled. And so, the argument goes, if those who are in God simply die and that's the end, then God is a liar. He doesn't keep his promises, and he is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if all that is true, he's not worthy of worship or following. See, the Sadducees are in over their heads. They don't realize it, but by their line of reasoning and their denial of the resurrection, they've called God and consequently his son a liar. All of the evidence here points to the opposite of what the Sadducees are suggesting. Earthly marriage and Moses' law do not disprove resurrection from the dead. They simply suggest that as Jesus points out, marriage is not the same in heaven. It's fulfilled in Jesus. Further, God does not break his covenants. He is not a liar. He is trustworthy. Jesus closes the debate with crushing words. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. You are badly mistaken. Ouch. Ouch, right? Those are not words that you want to hear and be on the receiving end as an expert in the law. The Sadducees were publicly humiliated. Jesus has dominated their intellect and theology. Question number two, whose wife will she be? Answer, when she rises, she will be like the angels, neither given in marriage nor married. Let's keep going in verses 28 to 34. It says this, One of the scribes approached. When he heard them debating... And saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, Which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one, and there is no one else except him and to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. It is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God, and no one dared to question him any longer. One of the scribes is listening on to these interactions and is impressed at this point with Jesus, who has now devastated the challenges of the religious elite. He comes to Jesus, Jesus asking our question number three, which command is the most important of all? Jesus responds immediately by quoting Deuteronomy chapter six. He says, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is love your neighbor as Yourself. Remember how Jesus finished his response to the Pharisees and the Herodians? He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. We are created in God's image, and so he is owed our very selves. And here is how we do it. First, we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our whole selves in total surrender to him. Unlike Caesar and his coins uh, controlling Roman currency and the system of spending and selling and taxation and allowing people to operate within that system, God in heaven controls literally every aspect of everything down to a level that's smaller than a molecular level. Apart from his stain- sustaining and providing, I will not take another breath on this stage. My body will not hold together. This building will not stand. Aside from the hand of God, the chair that you're sitting on will not support you. Apart from his sending his son to bear our sins on the cross, you and I would be destined for eternal torment in hell. But God holds us together. He allows us to breathe in his creation. He allows us to gather in this building that he holds up by his will. He allows us to walk around in his creation that he spoke into existence. And by a love that is deeper than we can imagine, he sent his son to die on a cross to pay for the sins of the world that we might be restored to a relationship with him that will exist for eternity. We owe him everything. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not hard to understand, right? There's a biblical principle and interpretation that says the simplest meaning or the plain meaning is usually the best and that's true here what does it mean to love god with all our heart soul mind and strength it means we love him with every aspect of our lives to the best of our ability surrendering our desires and our preferences and our understanding of who god is wholly to him for the sake of his glory and fame More fully and on this side of the cross as we understand the gospel, it means that we submit ourselves to the work of Jesus Christ and we live fully in his power, trusting in him for forgiveness and freedom from sin. Love God with everything inside of you. And, Jesus adds, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the natural outworking of the gospel transforming our hearts, right? We can't be hit with the good news of the gospel and continue to ignore our neighbors. And so two questions we have to ask. Who is our neighbor and what does it mean to love them as ourselves? In God's kingdom, the definition of neighbor has no bound. Your enemy is your neighbor. Your spouse is your neighbor. Your children, your co-worker, your teacher, your student, your parents— The person that cut you off in traffic, the person that hurt or offended you, the person you disagree with politically or theologically, the one who dresses different, talks different, has no interests in common with you. Your real, actual, physical neighbor is your neighbor. If you ask this question, is this person my neighbor? The answer is almost surely yes. And so, we love people as Ourselves—that's the outworking of the gospel in us. Jesus says, along with love the Lord your God with everything that's in you. Number two, right next to it, is love your neighbor as yourself. This is a pretty important thing. No greater commands than these. Love your neighbor as yourself. Deb Nobleman, a woman with a PhD in neuropharmacology, wrote an article where she cited multiple studies that were done. To tell us something that we probably already know all too well. We think about ourselves more than anyone or anything else, and it's by a wide margin. Sometimes thinking about ourselves is done in a super selfish way, and sometimes it's not, she suggests, but either way the point is made. By and large, we think about ourselves, we make decisions that benefit us, and we, and we consider how circumstances in life will affect me more than we do anyone or anything else. Jesus says that's not gonna work it's not gonna work we have to fight against that we have to ask the Spirit to work in our hearts to change us so our first thought won't be me but instead will be them how can I help them how will my decision affect them how can I lay down my rights for them we love ourselves an awful lot and Jesus says we need to love our neighbors Not just the ones we like an awful lot too. Upon hearing Jesus' reply, we see that the scribe confirms this is the correct answer, uh, as though that was ever in question. And he emphasizes that loving God and neighbor is far more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices. In other words, the way that we love God and love people matters more to God than fulfilling some religious duty. So love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. As people hit by the gospel, we can't do anything else. After giving another flawless answer, Mark tells us that no one dared to question Jesus any longer. Jesus has defeated his three challengers. He's thwarted their plans to trap him and he's shown that he is intellectually and theologically unmatched even by the best minds of the day. As the text goes on in verses 35 to 37, Jesus shifts the tone and instead of responding to questions, he goes on the offensive. Let's look at verses 35 to 37 says this, while Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. Question number four, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of of David. The argument that Jesus is making here is a little bit complicated, but stick with me and you'll get it. What's happening uh, is Jesus is going to show the scribes, some of the best educated religious minds of the day, that they have based their entire theology of the Messiah and consequently their entire hope for the future on a faulty premise. The common belief among the scribes was apparently that the Messiah, the anointed one who would deliver Israel, spoken of throughout the Old Testament would be the son of David. It's important to know what the scribes meant by son, though, because Jesus is the Messiah, right? And Jesus is the son of David, both in title and in lineage. The scribes, though, would have argued that the coming Messiah, who they did not identify as Jesus, would simply be in the line of David. His offspring, therefore his son, and would sit on his earthly throne would lead the nation of Israel back to its former glory, would deliver them from the oppressors that were the Roman Empire. Of course, we know that to be a far too small of a view of the Messiah, but the scribes thought this was the case based on how they read their Bible. And so, Jesus, turning the tables on them, continues to crush their intellect and tells them how wrong they are by pointing to and quoting Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Psalm 110, if you don't know, is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And Jesus uses it here to demonstrate that the Messiah, who we now know is Jesus himself, is not merely in the line of David. He is not David's son in the way that the scribes expected, as one from the line of David who would sit on his throne. He is, the Messiah is, David's Lord. What kingly father, Jesus asks, calls their son Lord. In this quotation from Psalm 110, when David writes, the Lord declared to my Lord, he uses God's name, Yahweh. So really he says, Yahweh declared to my Lord, that is the Messiah, Yahweh declared to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. God in heaven will seat the Messiah not on an earthly throne, but on one in heaven. Jesus' point is this. David himself rightly calls the Messiah Lord. How then can he be his son? Answer, he can't. He can't. And so how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? Based on their understanding of the Messiah and of son, they can't. And so the Messiah that they hoped for and looked forward to and longed for is incorrect. They get the basic premise around the Messiah wrong and Jesus has just pointed it out in a way that was clear and understood by everyone in the audience. The crowds were listening, it says, with delight as Jesus continued to best his challengers. So if you didn't track with that because I didn't explain it very clearly or you zoned out for a little bit, here's what you need to know just happened. Jesus has just destroyed the scribal view of the Messiah. After easily answering all three questions posed to him, he shifted from defender to aggressor and basically told the scribes, you think you've got this all figured out? Well, you don't. You don't. Your basic understanding of the Messiah is completely wrong. Good try. Jesus, four. Religious elite, zero. This whole text has been a call to fully surrender to God. God right? Our whole lives, our views of the afterlife and the resurrection, our heart, soul, mind, strength, who we live for, even what we know and understand about God and who he is. And at this point in Mark, it shifts a bit to compare and contrast two different people. And so as we wrap up, we have our two final questions. Question number five, what does surrender not look like? Let's look at verses 35 to 38. He also said in his teaching, beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. What does surrender not look like? Mark twelve thirty-eight 38 to 40. The scribes. It does not look like the scribes, those who would practice religion for the sake of self-advancement. They prey on those they are intended to serve. They seek positions of high honor and glory for themselves. And when, when instead, when rather, they should be pointing to people to God's glory and elevating him. These scribes that Jesus is calling out were prideful predators who will receive harsher judgment. Rather than submit to the Lord, they stand on top of him and try to claim his glory for themselves. That is not a life of submission do not be like the scribes so final question what does surrender look like let's look at verses 41 to 44 and our closing case study sitting across from the temple Treasury he that is Jesus watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury many rich people were putting in large sums then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very Little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others, for they all gave out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, has put everything she had, all she had to live on. As Jesus watches the scene in the temple play out, he sees a bunch of rich people putting large amounts of money into the treasury, donating to the temple. And then he sees a poor widow come up and put in two. Tiny coins worth very little. To anyone watching, they would have placed greater value in the larger sums, right? Certainly those who were giving more were, well, giving more, right? Wrong, Jesus says. And he pulls his disciples in to teach them. This widow, though she gave only two coins worth very little, has given more than all the others. For they Gave out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. If that's not convicting, I don't know what is. What does surrender look like? It looks like the widow. The widow who had very little, but gave it all. That's what it looks like to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. It looks like giving what it doesn't seem like you have, not from your excess, but from what you need. To be clear here, Jesus isn't just talking about money. Yes, the story is about money, and yes, we are called to be generous and sacrificial with our finances. Maybe that's how God's going to challenge you in this passage, but it's much more than that. It's your time, it's your talent, And yes, it's your treasure. And so what does it look like to love him in total surrender? It looks like the widow who gave everything she had to live on. Jesus has taken what seemed obvious and turned it upside down. The one who gives the most with their heart in the wrong place, in fact, gives very little. But the one who gives only a little, being all that they have, in their heart trusting that the Lord will sustain them, gives more than all the others. No gift of time or talent or treasure that you bring to the Lord when done out of obedience and gratitude is too small. And so this morning, as we close, I want you to consider this question. How is God calling you to surrender to him with all you have? How is he challenging you to love him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenging questions that we were able to wrestle with this morning. We thank you for the ways that your spirit convicts us and challenges us and encourages us to change. And so as we wrestle with this question of what it means to love you with everything inside of us and to love our neighbors as ourselves. God, we pray that you would provide clear answers for us and that we wouldn't just hear this uh, and engage with it with our minds, that this would cause us uh, to move to action as we love you more deeply and as we love our neighbors more sacrificially. It's in Jesus' name we pray.